All right, well, you can turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. That's where we'll be this morning. It's right in the middle of your Bible after Psalms and Proverbs. You'll find Ecclesiastes. While you're turning there, I suppose I probably should introduce myself. Uh, Julie and I, my wife, we're, we're talking, and we realized uh, we haven't been here at the Anderson campus on a Sunday morning in seven months. I believe it's been a long time. I'm Blake Jennings. I'm actually the teaching pastor over at our other campus, the Southwood campus. It's great to be back with you this morning as we look at the book of Ecclesiastes. Really excited about this message. Uh, before we actually get to Ecclesiastes, I want to actually start somewhere different. I want to start by giving you all kind of a, a tip, a uh, a suggestion for how you can have a spiritually refreshing summer. Now, hopefully for most of us, summer is a good time for for a break, for rest, for relaxation, a time to be physically and emotionally refreshed. But I hope that this summer you are also spiritually refreshed. You are renewed in your walk with the Lord. And what I have found over the years is one of the best ways for me to be renewed in my walk with the Lord during the summer is to pick up a missionary biography. There are a few things as inspiring as the story of a man or a woman whom God used to reach a people who don't know Jesus Christ. So I want to give you a few examples. I encourage you to just write one of these down. You don't have to get all five. Just write one down and get it this week. Add it to your summer reading list. It will be incredibly beneficial to you, I promise. So let me give you five of the ones that I think are some of the best. The Heavenly Man by Brother Yoon. That's a contemporary story. Brother Yoon is alive and well today. God has used this man to reach thousands throughout China and much of Asia. God has done miraculous, crazy things in this guy's life. Really exciting book to read. Really inspiring. A Chance to Die, the biography of Amy Carmichael by Elizabeth Elliot. Uh, Amy Carmichael lived just an amazingly faithful life. Amazing woman who is very inspiring to us today. So that's a good one too. God Smuggler by Brother Andrew. This is a fun one to read. Brother Andrew was one of the first evangelical believers to take the gospel and Bibles through the Iron Curtain into Soviet Russia in the 50s and 60s. So really exciting book to read. Really fun. Uh, Christian Heroes is actually a set of biographies, short biographies by Janet and Jeff Bang. And you can get them at worldchristian.com. I like these because they're written at the level of maybe a fourth or fifth grade reader. So your kids can read them with you. This is great for families to do during the summer. I finished not long ago the story of Andrew Murray, one of these, and it was just fascinating, really inspiring. So pick up one of these. It's only like maybe 180, 200 pages. You can read it easy with your kids and then talk about it. So that's really an awesome opportunity this summer. And then To the Golden Shore, the biography of Adoniram Judson by Courtney Anderson. Judson was the first missionary to leave the United States. He went to Burma. Now, actually, the fifth one there, the final one, Judson's story, is actually my personal favorite of, of the whole list, and here's why. Often when you are reading a missionary biography, the, the person, the main character, the missionary, they kind of come across to me as, as a saint on earth. They come across as, as a believer who's kind of risen above the level of us mere mortals. They sound incredibly faithful. They persevere through incredible trials. I'm kind of expecting by the end of the book that I'm going to read about them walking on water because they're that awesome. They're incredible. So most of those biographies are really, really inspiring, but they come across incredibly faithful Judson's biography is a little bit different. Judson was a faithful man, an incredible believer. He finished his life well. And yet when life got difficult, when he faced pain and suffering, Judson struggled with doubt and despair and depression. Uh, When his first wife died, Judson went and built a hut in the middle of the tiger-infested jungle of Burma, and he lived there alone for a year. 
He would sit day after day on the ground in front of an open grave that he had dug so that he could contemplate the horrors of death. The guy was incredibly depressed. He struggled in a, in a real and raw way with the pain and suffering of life. And so when I read his biography, I hear myself in it. I hear us in it. Judson sounds like a guy like all of us who struggles with life and yet was faithful to the end. That's why his story is so compelling. And that's actually the exact same reason that I chose the book of Ecclesiastes for us to study this morning. Ecclesiastes is, out of all of the books of the Bible, perhaps the most raw. The most real to the pain, suffering, disillusionment, disappointment of life in this world. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you're going to think it was written last week. Because it speaks to life in a cynical and doubtful age like we live in. It's so real to the emotions we all suffer from. The despair, the disillusionment that are so common to modern life. The book of Ecclesiastes has so much to teach us here in the 21st century if we'll only listen to it. The challenge is the book of Ecclesiastes is remarkably difficult to understand. It's a really tough book that we're looking at this morning. In preparing this sermon, I consulted four different commentaries and found four different interpretations of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a tough book. The, the challenge actually starts with authorship. We don't know who wrote it. Never identifies himself. In fact, as you read the book, it would appear that probably two different people wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. The first section, look at, the, at chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Most of the book, from 1-1 one, one to 12-8 was written by this guy. Look at verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. He calls himself the preacher. He speaks of himself in first person. I did this. I did that. What do we know about the preacher? Well, son or descendant of David, king of Jerusalem. Uh, In verse 16, he tells us that he was wiser than all his predecessors. In chapter 2, we find out he was phenomenally wealthy. That sounds a lot like Solomon. Can't prove it, but we're probably looking at a book written by Solomon from 1.1 to 12.8. But then there's a transition in the last chapter, chapter 12. So look with me there. Chapter 12, things kind of change in verse 9. Uh, the author stops speaking of himself in first person. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Instead, look at verse 9. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. Here he's speaking in third person, in past tense. It kind of sounds like we're looking at maybe a follower of Solomon, a disciple of Solomon that came years later, collected his speech, and then added a conclusion. That's one option. That could be the case. I think probably a more likely option is this is still Solomon speaking, but years later, maybe decades later. He comes back as an older and wiser man and he collects his writing and he adds a definitive conclusion to it. It's common in biblical literature. It's weird to us, but common that you would speak of yourself in third person past tense so they could do that. So I can't prove it to you, but I think that we've got a book written by Solomon from beginning to end, but at two different periods in Solomon's life. From 1-1 to the middle of chapter 12, we're looking at Solomon in the middle of his life. And as we'll see this morning, it's Solomon as he goes through a spiritual valley, as he goes through a a period of depression, as he goes through what we moderns would call a midlife crisis. Okay, So midlife crisis Solomon, he writes the bulk of the book, but then perhaps decades later, older and wiser Solomon comes back and adds a definitive conclusion at the end of the book. Now, there's a lot of similarities between the two sections. Solomon, throughout writing the whole book, throughout his whole life, he believed in God as sovereign creator and judge. You'll see that throughout the book. God as judge. God as creator. In addition, at both periods in his life, 
Solomon was a remarkably wise and observant man. He was one of the most observant individuals who has ever lived. He saw clearly the nature of this world. But as much as unites together Solomon while he went through his midlife crisis and as an older and wiser man, if you want to understand the book of Ecclesiastes, you have to contrast these two periods in Solomon's life. You have to look at what's different between the bulk of the book and the end of the book. If you see what's different, then the meaning, the message of Ecclesiastes will become clear to you. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to let Solomon speak to us both in the midst of his midlife crisis and as an older and wiser man. We're going to let both Solomon speak to us and see what they have to teach us as 21st century believers. Let's start with Solomon in the midst of his midlife crisis. What does midlife crisis Solomon have to say to us this morning? Well, the big idea of 1-1 to 12-8 is Solomon concludes, if my hope is in this life, then I am destined for disappointment. If my hope is in this life and what this world has to offer me, I am destined to be let down. I will be disappointed. Solomon communicates that idea by using a particular phrase over and over again. He talks about life under the sun. 29 times he talks about life under the sun. He's talking literally about life on this planet under that sun that we live that ends in death. Life as we experience here, as we taste it, touch it, feel it. This life that ends in death. Solomon is preoccupied with life under the sun. Midlife crisis Solomon is trying desperately to find meaning, significance, and satisfaction in life under the sun. He's looking everywhere. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. Where can I find meaning and significance and satisfaction in life under the sun? So he searches everywhere. Sadly, his findings are disappointing. His findings are less than ideal. He concludes that all in this world, all that this world offers us is at the end of the day, vanity. Look with me at chapter 1. We're going to look at his conclusion starting in verse 12. Chapter 1, verse 12. Solomon says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. Midlife crisis Solomon loves that word vanity. It's the Hebrew word habel. It can be translated worthlessness, futility. He actually begins and ends his speech with that word. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. Here's the beginning of his speech. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He actually repeats that verse at the end of his speech. It bookmarks it. He's saying everything in this world, everything that I look to find significance and satisfaction from, all of it is vanity, all of it is futility, all of it is worthless, pointless, Solomon is going through an incredible crisis of faith here. He's going through an incredible low period in his life, a depression. I think if we were to look at Solomon today, we might diagnose him as clinically depressed. Look at some of the things he says. Chapter 2, Solomon says, So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after wind. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun." Chapter 4, so I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living, but better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. 
At one point in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says that the baby who is miscarried is more fortunate than the baby who lives. Because the first baby never has to see any days under the sun. This guy is incredibly depressed. He is hopeless in life. He is full of despair. Now, what is it that made Solomon so hopeless, that made him so depressed? Why is he going through this midlife crisis? What is it that has filled him with despair? Well, he gives us four reasons for his despair in the book of Ecclesiastes. Four observations that he makes about the nature of life in this world that are incredibly true, that are incredibly relevant to us today. Uh, These four observations about life in this world, in some senses, these are the real gems of the book. These are the real reasons Ecclesiastes is valuable to us. If you will come to understand and believe these four observations that midlife crisis Solomon makes about life in this world, you will be a much wiser person for it. So let's look at these four observations, four things that make Solomon so depressed about life under the sun. Number one, Solomon looks out at this world and and he sees that this world is full of human beings and he realizes that human beings are profoundly broken. We human beings who fill and run this planet are profoundly broken. That brokenness flows out of the fact that we are all sinners. We all sin. Look with me. We'll just look up these verses real quick. Chapter 7, verse 20. Turn there. Chapter 7, verse 20. Solomon says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. In other words, even the guy who looks righteous, he still sins. He still blows it. He still brings pain into his life and the lives of others through sin. None is righteous. Look at the next verse, chapter 9, verse 3. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. In other words, Solomon says, I look out and I see that all of us are full of not just sin, not just evil, but insanity. We are insane people. We are broken because of our sin and insanity. He goes on, says after that, verse, chapter 8, verse 14, not only are we sinful, but as I look at this world, it appears that our sin goes unpunished, unjudged. Look at verse 14 in chapter 8. There is futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say this too is futility. He looks out and he sees not only are we sinners, but God lets our sin go unpunished. The wicked seem to live longer than the righteous. The righteous die young and suffer. Solomon is beat down by that fact. Furthermore, he concludes, because of our sin, because of the pervasiveness of our sin and brokenness, it corrupts all that we do. All human activities are corrupted. They are rotted. They are broken by sin. Look up these verses with me. Chapter 4, verse 4. Solomon looks out at the world and he sees, I've seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after wind. You want to know why capitalism seems to work better than communism on this planet? Because capitalism is a little bit more biblically accurate. Capitalism is based on, it is founded on the presupposition that humans are greedy creatures. That what we want is is what our neighbor has. That we operate out of envy and jealousy. That's why capitalism works. It's far more realistic than communism. Communism assumes what? 
that we want to share with one another. That's a sweet system, but it's meant for another planet because we don't like to share. We are by nature envious, jealous, greedy people. Solomon says everything we do at the end of the day is founded, it is based on rivalry. Look up chapter 5, verse 8, look with me there. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official and there are higher officials over them. In other words, Solomon says as you look at this world and you see injustice, as you see corruption, don't be surprised, that's normal. You should expect that. Human beings are so sinful, they are so broken that they will take advantage of whatever power you give them. That's why it's important for us as voters to make sure there are checks and balances on our politicians because as broken human beings, they will take advantage of whatever power we give them. That's why corruption is so common in most nations of this planet because this world is broken. Solomon looks at it and not only does he see that our sin corrupts all of our activities, but he laments over the fact that even the wisest among us cannot escape that fate. Even the wisest human beings suffer from the fall of sin. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. Solomon says, Because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. There really is a bliss that comes from ignorance. The more you know, the more you understand about the brokenness of this world, the more you suffer for it. It is logical that a lot of us adults would really rather be children again. We'd really rather forget all the painful things we know about this world as adults. Look at chapter 9, verse 18. Solomon says, Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. In other words, the diligent work of wise human beings can accomplish more than military might, and yet one sinner can undo it all. I was reading a few weeks ago about a charitable organization that was set up, a nonprofit organization called the Innocence Project. They were set up to use modern DNA forensic evidence to see if folks who were put in prison were wrongfully convicted. They would go look through the records and see whether there were criminals who were, who were convicted based on shaky evidence. They would retry the evidence using modern techniques. And sometimes that, that led them to find that, that the wrong person was nabbed. The wrong person was convicted. It led people to be released from prison. So it's a pretty great organization. huh? That's, that's a really great mission that they're on. That, that organization just had one problem. They invested their money with a guy named Bernard Madoff. All of their funding was invested with the man who perpetrated the biggest con ever, $50 billion Ponzi scheme. They lost all their money. So they lost their building. All their employees are fired. Their DNA centrifuges are packed up in storage. All that work, all that effort to do such a good thing, to get innocent people released from prison, is undone by the sin of one man. This world is so broken. Solomon is crushed over the brokenness of this world. But not only is it broken, that leads him really to the second observation that he makes. Second thing that depresses him. Solomon looks out at the brokenness of this world and he concludes it is never going to get any better. No matter what human beings do, we can never fix the brokenness of this world. That's interesting, the word that Solomon used for vanity, hebel in Hebrew. In other books of the Bible, that word is translated breath, of human beings breathing in and out. Now, how can the same Hebrew word mean either vanity or breath? Well, because both of those things describe something that is fleeting, that doesn't last. When you take a breath, what do you have to do a few seconds later? You have to breathe again. 
Each breath you take makes no permanent change in your body. You have to keep doing it over and over again. Well, so Solomon says, all the labor of our hands, we do it and it makes no permanent change. There is no permanence to our efforts. Look with me at chapter 1. Chapter 1, let's pick it up. We'll start in verse 3. Solomon says, What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place it rises there again. Blowing toward the south and turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new? Already it has existed for ages which were before us. Solomon is the ultimate realist. Midlife crisis, Solomon looks at the world, he looks at human history, and he sees that despite all of our progress, all of our scientific advancements, all of our improvements to economics and government, at the end of the day, the world is no better for us being here. We may change the conditions and the circumstances of our lives, but the world doesn't get any better. Now, to me, this was proven about 70 years ago. End of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s, the Western world went through a time of unprecedented human progress. We invented all kinds of things, light bulbs, telephones, automobiles, airplanes that shrunk our world, that created a global society. We built factories so that all kinds of people could have possessions in their home. We created the middle class so that unprecedented amounts of people could have access to wealth and education. And at the end of that period, what did all that human progress get us? Great Depression, two world wars, and a holocaust. All of that human progress simply taught us how to kill one another in greater quantities. Solomon is right. He looks at this world and he sees that despite all of our efforts, we are not making it any better. We can't fix the brokenness of this world. So let me ask you, are are you feeling depressed yet? (laughs) Are you seeing why Solomon in this midlife crisis was so depressed, was so discouraged? Well, so far we've only looked at two of his reasons. We're only halfway there. Let's look at what else depressed, discouraged midlife crisis Solomon. Observation number three that Solomon makes about this world is that what this world offers us can never satisfy our infinite desire for more. Now, Solomon was a very unique individual. He's one of the only people who's ever lived on this planet who never had to hear the word no. Anything that Solomon wanted, he had. Anything on the planet he wanted, it was his. Look with me at chapter 2. Let's look at Solomon's resources. What did he have at his disposal in life? Look with me starting in verse 3 of chapter 2. Solomon says, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. 
and I had to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and I had homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor." If you list it out, what we see is that midlife crisis Solomon had at his disposal infinite money. He had limitless wealth. He had endless possessions. He had homes. He had parks. He had everything he wanted. He had limitless food and drink and and limitless leisure because he had an army of servants at his disposal. And he literally had 1,000 women at his beck and call. Midlife crisis Solomon had what every human being is born wanting limitless resources. Anything he wanted, he could have. And so at this period in his life, as he goes through the middle period of his life, he gives himself 100% to the pursuit of pleasure. Both legitimate pleasures and illegitimate pleasures, he takes of all of them. He drinks of everything this world can offer him, both good and bad. He takes it all. Anything his eyes desires, he takes. And what's the conclusion? What's the result? After taking all that this world could offer, what does he find? Look at verse 11. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Solomon is the one human being ever who had everything this world could offer, and at the end of the day, it leaves him empty and full of despair. Now, this to me is why Solomon is one of God's greatest gifts to the human race. See, God took Solomon and all of Solomon's sins and faults, and he offers Solomon to us now as absolute proof that the things of this world can never satisfy us. Even if we had everything this world offers, it would not satisfy you. Solomon is the definitive answer to the question, would I be happy if I just had a little more? Would I be happy if I just had a little bigger house? If I just had a little newer car? If I just had a little better job? If I just had a little more attractive spouse? This world and our flesh cry out, yes, go buy that bigger house, get that better car, look at that prettier woman, and you will be happy. But what does Solomon say? No. Though you had everything this world could offer you, still you would be full of dissatisfaction and despair if you were looking for satisfaction in what this world gives. Men, I want to speak to you, especially married men, I want to speak to you as a married man. This world is trying to convince us that if our spouse was just a little prettier and a little more exciting, that we would be happy, that we would be sexually satisfied in life. But what does Solomon say to that? Solomon had at his disposal 1,000 of the most beautiful women on the planet. He just picked whoever he wanted to be with on any given night. Was he sexually satisfied? No. 
At the end of that time, he was as empty and dissatisfied as ever. You've got to wonder, what was going through Solomon's head once he got to 900 women? 900 of the prettiest women on the planet, and he had to have another 100? Solomon is proof to us men that the lustful desires of our heart can never be satisfied. If you are trying to seek satisfaction through what you can find on this planet, you will always be disappointed. You you click on that, that picture of the woman on the internet. You flirt with that woman at work. You have an affair. I guarantee you afterward you will be as unsatisfied as ever and now you will combine with your dissatisfaction, guilt, and regret. If you go Solomon's path, if you seek what you can find in this world to satisfy your desires, you will be left empty, dissatisfied, full of regret and guilt. Men, our only choice is to choose contentment. Choose to be content. Choose to be thankful for the woman you have. When when temptation comes calling, when you are tempted to look elsewhere, take those thoughts captive. Remind yourself that no one in this world, no other woman in this world can ever satisfy you. Choose instead to be thankful for the woman you have. Turn to God and thank Him for the things that you like about your wife. Look for her strengths. Look for the gifts that she brings you, not at her faults, not at her limitations. If you pursue satisfaction through what this world offers, you will be left empty and full of despair, just like Solomon was. This world will never satisfy our infinite desire for more. It's the third reason Solomon was so depressed. Fourth reason, final thing, that left Solomon so full of despair was he looked at life and he saw that all the pursuits and all the pleasures of this world end in death. They end in death. Now, every time midlife crisis Solomon mentions death in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's a very dark thing. Death for him was a black hole of doubt and despair. Now, we need to, we need to pause for a moment as we're studying Ecclesiastes. We need to remember the principle of progressive revelation. We need to remember that God did not hand this book to humanity at one time. Now, this is actually a collection of 66 books that God gave one at a time throughout thousands of years of human history. So whenever you open the Bible and you read a book of it, one of the first questions you need to ask yourself is, what scripture did this author have when he wrote? Did Solomon have the New Testament? No, didn't exist yet. Did Solomon have any of the prophets of the Old Testament? Nope, not written yet. Did Solomon have most of the history books of the Old Testament? No. Solomon had the first five books of the Bible, perhaps Job, most of the Psalms, maybe a couple other books here and there. That's all he had. And when you study what Solomon had at his disposal, what you come to find out is that at that point in human history, God had said very, very little about the afterlife. There had yet been no mention of resurrection, no mention of heaven, no mention of God's judgment of the living and the dead. All of that was not yet revealed. So for Solomon and for his contemporaries, death and the afterlife were shrouded in mystery. Now Solomon could have responded to that mystery in faith. He could have said, yeah, I don't know what's coming next, but I trust God's good. He's going to work everything out. But in the midst of his midlife crisis, full of despair, he doesn't respond in faith. He responds in doubt. Solomon basically looks at this life, at how broken this life is, and he assumes the worst about the next life. Look at a couple passages with me. Chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 5. Solomon says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. 
And then verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol or death where you are going. In other words, Solomon looks out and and he doesn't yet know much about death, but this life is disappointing him so much, the next life must disappoint him worse. He assumes the worst about God and about the next life. In other words, Solomon has no hope in this life or in the next life. He is without hope in this world or the next world. And out of that despair, out of that hopelessness, when Solomon turns finally to give us advice, when midlife Solomon tells us how we should live, he goes astray. Without faith, without hope, full of despair, full of disillusionment, midlife crisis Solomon falls into heresy. The application of midlife crisis Solomon's writings is this. Enjoy this life because it's all you know you're going to get. If you stopped in the middle of chapter 12, that would be the meaning, the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. Enjoy this life because it's all you know you're going to get. Look at a couple passages with me. Chapter 8, starting in verse 14. He says, There is futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this too is futility. Righteous men go unrewarded, wicked men go unpunished, so how should we live? Verse 15, so I commended pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry, and this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. Look with me, chapter 11, verse 8. He says, indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all and let him remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. Follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for these things. So remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. Now, in this passage, midlife crisis, Solomon mentions the judgment of God, but does he really believe that God is going to judge? Does he really fear the judgment of God? No, he doesn't. He's looked at this life and seen that so often the righteous go unrewarded and the wicked go unpunished. So, you know, God's judgment, not that big a deal. Here's what you should do, young man. Pursue the desires of your eyes. Pursue the impulses of your heart. Put pain far away from you. Seek comfort in this life. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is really bad advice. This is really, really bad advice. This is the reason that we should never take Scripture out of context. If you were to take these passages out of Ecclesiastes and base your life upon them, you would be living contrary to the whole message of Scripture. In fact, you would be living contrary to the message of the book of Ecclesiastes because Ecclesiastes doesn't end here. Midlife crisis Solomon doesn't have the last word. Years, maybe decades later, Solomon repents. He changes his ways. He turns back to the Lord. And as an older and wiser man, he comes back, he collects his writing, and he adds a definitive conclusion that turns the whole book on its head. That turns 180 degrees the whole message of the book. That's what I want to look at now. I want to let Solomon, as an older and wiser man, speak to us. Look at chapter 12. We'll start in verse 9. Chapter 12, verse 9. He says, in addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. 
I think what he's saying is, as an older and wiser man, he's looking back at this period, this midlife crisis, and he's looking back at what he wrote there, and he's saying, you know what? I was right in my observations. My observations about the brokenness of this world, they were spot on. You would do well to learn from those, to let them be like goads or nails that cause you pain, that wake you up out of the stupor of this world, that help you see the brokenness and dissatisfaction of this world. I was right in my observations. Where I went wrong was in my conclusions. Look with me in starting in verse 12. But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. It's every student's favorite verse right there. You can (laughs) write that one down, students. I think what Solomon is saying here is, you know what? There's a limit to human wisdom, to human understanding. Earlier in my life, when I was going through my midlife crisis, I was pursuing above all else knowledge, wisdom. I was trying to understand this world, and at the end of the day, all my knowledge, all my wisdom left me depressed. I shouldn't have been focusing on knowledge so much. I should have been focusing on what really matters. And that's given to us in verses 13 and 14, the two most important verses of the entire book. Read with me in 13 and 14, Solomon says, The conclusion, when all has been heard, is, Fear God and keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Solomon concludes, what does all of life come down to? Two things. If you want to find meaning and significance in life under the sun, here it is. These two things. Number one, faith. That's the point of verse 14. Now, uh, as an older and wiser man towards the end of his life, Solomon still didn't know anything more about the afterlife. It was still a mystery to him. But now he responds to that mystery in faith instead of in doubt. He says, I don't know the details. I don't know when God's going to do it, but I believe that God's going to make all things right. He will bring all people and all actions into judgment. I have faith that God will make things right. Based on that faith, that motivates him to the second thing that matters in this life, obedience. If I believe that God will make things right, that he will reward righteousness, that he will punish wickedness, then the one thing that life boils down to, based on that faith, is obedience. I should be obeying God. Now, it's really interesting. In verse 13, uh, we have the first mention in the whole book of God's commands or his law, his commandments. Now, that's, that's actually really weird for an Old Testament book. If you've read the Old Testament, you know they have a lot to say about the law. Over and over again, they're talking about commandments from God. Uh, and yet, midlife crisis Solomon in 12 and a half chapters never mentions God's law once. That's a glaring omission that tells us that midlife crisis Solomon, he was so full of despair and depression that he had taken his eyes off the ball. He had forgotten the thing that matters most, his relationship with God. He totally neglected that. But as an older and wiser man, he now sees. I should have quit looking at what this world offers me. I should have focused on what matters most, faith and obedience. Faith in the promises of God to make things right. Obedience to the law of God, the one thing that matters in this life. And now with with Solomon's definitive conclusion to the book, we can wrap this all up. What is the book of Ecclesiastes about? It is an attempt to answer the question, how do we find meaning and satisfaction under the sun? How do we find meaning and satisfaction in this life, on this planet? Well, Solomon concluded very accurately, it's not through anything this planet can offer you. It's not through anything this world can offer you because this world is profoundly broken. Because this world is never going to get any better. Because all that this world has can never satisfy our infinite desires for more. And because all that this world has ends in death. 
So quit looking for what this world can provide. Instead, if you want to have meaning and satisfaction under the sun, you have to have your eyes fixed beyond the sun. You have to look beyond this world, beyond this life to the next life. If you want meaning, if you want satisfaction in the short days that we live on this planet, you have to keep your life focused on the next life. To quit looking for satisfaction in this world and look to the next world. You do that, you live for the next world, just like Solomon said at the end, through faith and through obedience. Faith in God's promises. We live for the next world by believing that God will make things right. Now we, the folks of us in this room, are actually far more blessed than Solomon was. Because we have far more of God's revelation. God has revealed after Solomon to us that everyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ, who believes that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead, that all of us have guaranteed an eternity with God in a perfectly satisfying place called heaven. We know that promise. If you want to live a satisfying life, live in faith. Believe that your best life is not in this world, it's in the world to come. That's when you will be satisfied. That's when you will be fulfilled. And out of that faith, then choose obedience. If God will make all things right, if we can believe that He will reward righteousness, then the logical response is to obey Him. To dedicate this life, not to the pursuit of pleasure, not to the pursuit of what this world can offer that will only leave us empty and unsatisfied, but to obey. Really all does come down to faith and obedience. Let's close in prayer and let's ask God to help us to learn from Solomon's mistakes and not make those same mistakes again, but instead to live a life of faith and obedience. Lord, we thank you so much for Solomon. He's a gift to us. He's a gift to us because you allowed him to experience all this world could offer and yet it left him empty and unsatisfied. Thank you for that. It is proof to us that this world can never satisfy us. So help us, Lord, please, to learn from his mistakes, to learn from what he did poorly, and to choose the other option, to choose to live by faith, to choose to obey you day in and day out. Help us, Lord, to seek our best life, to seek our satisfaction, to seek our fulfillment in the next world, and what you will give us in eternity in heaven. Help us to live this short life, the short few days that we have on this planet for you, to live for what counts for eternity, to live out of faith in your promises and out of obedience to your commands. Thank you so much for the gift of your son, Jesus, who gives us hope, who makes this life meaningful because he died for us that we can spend eternity with you. Thank you so much for the gift of your son and for the gift of this book. Help us to learn from it. Help us to apply it. We pray all this in the name of your son. Amen. All right. Have a great week, you all.